Part four of Lady Interfox by David Garnet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. The next morning he had more of a struggle than ever to wash and dress her. Indeed, at one time, nothing but holding her by the scruff prevented her from getting away from him, but at last he achieved his object, and she was washed, brushed, scented, and dressed, although, to be sure, this left him better pleased than her, for she regarded her silk jacket with disfavour. Still, at breakfast, she was well-mannered, though a trifle hasty with her food. Then his difficulties with her began, for she would go out, but as he had his housework to do, he could not allow it. He brought her picture-books to divert her, but she would have none of them, but stayed at the door, scratching it with her claws industriously, till she had worn away the paint. At first he tried coaxing her, and wheedling, gave her cards to play patience, and so on. But finding nothing would distract her from going out, his temper began to rise, and he told her plainly that she must wait his pleasure, and that he had as much natural obstinacy as she had. But to all that he said she paid no heed whatever but only scratched the harder. Thus he let her continue until luncheon, when she would not sit up or eat off a plate, but first was for getting on to the table, and when that was prevented, snatched her meat and ate it under the table. To all his rebukes she turned a deaf or sullen ear, and so they each finished their meal eating little either of them for till she would sit at table he would give her no more, and his vexation had taken away his own appetite. In the afternoon he took her out for her airing in the garden. She made no pretence now of enjoying the first snowdrops, or the view from the terrace, no, there was only one thing for her now, the ducks, and she was off to them before he could stop her, Luckily they were all swimming when she got there, for a stream running into the pond on the far side it was not frozen there. When he had got down to the pond she ran out onto the ice, which would not bear his weight, and though he called her and begged her to come back, she would not heed him but stayed frisking about, getting as near the ducks as she dared, but being circumspect in venturing on to the thin ice. Presently she turned on herself, and began tearing off her clothes, and at last, by biting, got off her little jacket, and taking it in her mouth, stuffed it into a hole in the ice where he could not get it. Then she ran hither and thither, a stark-naked vixen, and without giving a glance to her poor husband, who stood silently now upon the bank, with despair and terror settled in his mind. She let him stay there most of the afternoon, till he was chilled through and through, 
and worn out with watching her. At last he reflected how she had just stripped herself, and how in the morning she struggled against being dressed, and he thought, perhaps, he was too strict with her, and if he let her have her own way, they could manage to be happy somehow together, even if she did eat off the floor. So he called out to her then, "'Sylvia, come now, be good. You shan't wear any more clothes if you don't want to, and you needn't sit at table neither, I promise. You shall do as you like in that, but you must give up one thing, and that is you must stay with me and not go out alone, for that's dangerous. If any dog came on you, he would kill you.' Directly he had finished speaking, she came to him joyously, began fawning on him and prancing round him, so that in spite of his vexation with her and being cold, he could not help stroking her. Oh, Sylvia, are you not willful and cunning? I see you glory in being so, but I shall not reproach you, but shall stick to my side of the bargain, and you must stick to yours. He built a big fire when he came back to the house, and took a glass or two of spirits also, to warm himself up, for he was chilled to the very bone. Then, after they had dinner, to cheer himself, he took another glass, and then another, and so on, till he was very merry, he thought. Then he would play with his vixen, she encouraging him with her pretty sportiveness. He got up to catch her then, and finding himself unsteady on his legs, he went down on to all fours. The long and the short of it is that by drinking he drowned all his sorrow, and then would be a beast too like his wife, though she was one through no fault of her own and could not help it. To what lengths he went then in that drunken humour, I shall not offend my readers by relating, but shall only say that he was so drunk and sottish that he had a very imperfect recollection of what had passed when he woke the next morning. There is no exception to the rule that if a man drink heavily at night, the next morning will show the other side to his nature. Thus with Mr. Tabrick, for as he had been beastly, merry, and a very daredevil the night before, so on his awakening was he ashamed, melancholic, and a true penitent before his Creator. The first thing he did when he came to himself was to call out to God to forgive him for his sin. Then he fell into earnest prayer and continued so for half an hour upon his knees. Then he got up and dressed, but continued very melancholy for the whole of the morning. Being in this mood, you may imagine, it hurt him to see his wife running about naked. But he reflected, it would be a bad reformation that began with breaking faith. He had made a bargain, and he would stick to it, and so he let her be, though sorely against his will. For the same reason, that is, because he would stick to his side of the bargain, he did not require her to sit up at table, but gave her her breakfast on the dish in the corner, where, to tell the truth, she, on her side, ate it all up with great daintiness and propriety. 
nor did she make any attempt to go out of doors that morning, but lay curled up in an armchair before the fire dozing. After lunch he took her out, and she never so much as offered to go near the ducks, but running before him, led him on to take her a longer walk. This he consented to do very much to her joy and delight. He took her through the fields by the most unfrequented ways, being much alarmed lest they should be seen by any one, but by good luck they walked above four miles across country and saw nobody. All the way his wife kept running on ahead of him, and then back to him to lick his hand, and so on, and appeared delighted at taking exercise. And though they startled two or three rabbits and a hare in the course of their walk, she never attempted to go after them, only giving them a look, and then looking back to him, laughing at him, as it were for his warning cry of, Puss, come in, no nonsense now. Just when they got home, and were going into the porch, they came face to face with an old woman. Mr. Tabrick stopped short in consternation, and looked about for his vixen, but she had run forward without any shyness to greet her. Then he recognised the intruder. It was his wife's old nurse. "'What are you doing here, Mrs. Cork?' he asked her. Mrs. Cork answered him in these words. "'Poor thing! Poor Miss Sylvia! It is a shame to let her run about like a dog. It is a shame, and your own wife, too. But whatsoever she looks like, you should trust her the same as ever. If you do—' She'll do her best to be a good wife to you. If you don't, I shouldn't wonder if she did turn into a proper fox. I saw her, sir, before I left, and I've had no peace of mind. I couldn't sleep thinking of her, so I've come back to look after her, as I have done all her life, sir. And she stooped down and took Mrs. Tabrick by the paw. Mr. Tabrick unlocked the door and they went in. When Mrs. Cork saw the house, she exclaimed again and again, The place was a pigsty. They couldn't live like that. A gentleman must have somebody to look after him. She would do it. He could trust her with the secret. Had the old woman come the day before, it is likely enough that Mr. Tabrick would have sent her packing. But the voice of conscience being woken in him by his drunkenness of the night before, he was heartily ashamed of his own management of the business. Moreover, the old woman's words that it was a shame to let her run about like a dog moved him exceedingly. Being in this mood, the truth is he welcomed her. But we may conclude that Mrs. Tabrick was as sorry to see her old nanny as her husband was glad. If we consider that she had been brought up strictly by her when she was a child, and was now again in her power, and that her old nurse could never be satisfied with her now whatever she did, but would always think her wicked to be a fox at all. There seems good reason for her dislike, and it is possible, too, that there may have been another cause as well, and that is jealousy. We know her husband was always trying to bring her back to be a woman, or at any rate to get her to act like one, may she not have been hoping to get him to be like a beast himself, or to act like one? 
may she not have thought it easier to change him thus than ever to change herself back into being a woman? If we think that she had had a success of this kind only the night before, when he got drunk, can we not conclude that this was indeed the case? And then we have another good reason why the poor lady should hate to see her old nurse. It is certain that whatever hopes Mr. Tabrick had of Mrs. Cork affecting his wife for the better were disappointed. She grew steadily wilder, and after a few days so intractable with her that Mr. Tabrick again took her under his complete control. The first morning Mrs. Cork made her a new jacket, cutting down the sleeves of a blue silk one of Mrs. Tabrick's and trimming it with swan's down and directly she had altered it, put it on her mistress, and fetching a mirror, would have her admire the fit of it. All the time she waited on Mrs. Tabrick, the old woman talked to her as though she were a baby, and treated her as such, never thinking, perhaps, that she was either the one thing or the other, that is, either a lady to whom she owed respect, and who had rational powers exceeding her own, or else a wild creature on whom words were wasted. But though at first she submitted passively, Mrs. Tabrick only waited for her nanny's back to be turned, to tear up her pretty piece of handiwork into shreds, and then ran gaily about, waving her brush with only a few ribbons still hanging from her neck. So it was time after time, for the old woman was used to having her own way, until Mrs. Cork would, I think, have tried punishing her if she had not been afraid of Mrs. Tabrick's rows of white teeth, which she often showed her, then laughing afterwards, as if to say it was only play. Not content with tearing up the dresses that were fitted on her, one day Sylvia slipped upstairs to her wardrobe, and tore down all her old dresses, and made havoc with them, not sparing her wedding dress either, but tearing and ripping them all up, so that there was hardly a shred or rag left big enough to dress a doll in. On this, Mr. Tabrick, who had let the old woman have most of her management, to see what she could make of her, took her back under his own control. He was sorry enough now that Mrs. Cork had disappointed him in the hopes he had had of her, to have the old woman, as it were, on his hands. True, she could be useful enough in many ways to him, by doing the housework, the cooking and mending, but still he was anxious, since his secret was in her keeping, and the more now that she had tried her hand with his wife and failed, for he saw that vanity had kept her mouth shut, if she had won over her mistress to better ways, and her love for her would have grown by getting her own way with her. But now that she had failed, she bore her mistress a grudge for not being won over, or at the best was become indifferent to the business, so that she might very readily blab. For the moment, all Mr. Tabrick could do was to keep her from going into Stokoe to the village, where she would meet all her old cronies, and where there were certain to be any number of inquiries about what was going on at Rylands, and so on. But as he saw that it was clearly beyond his power, however vigilant he might be, 
to watch over the old woman and his wife, and to prevent anyone from meeting with either of them, he began to consider what he could best do. Since he had sent away his servants and the gardener, giving out a story of having received bad news, and his wife going away to London, where he would join her, there probably going out of England, and so on, he knew well enough that there would be a great deal of talk in the neighbourhood. And as he had now stayed on, contrary to what he had said, there would be further rumour. Indeed, had he known it, there was a story already going round the country, that his wife had run away with Major Soames, and that he was gone mad with grief, that he had shot his dogs and his horses, and shut himself up alone in the house, and would speak with no one. This story was made up by his neighbours, not because they were fanciful or wanted to deceive, but, like most tittle-tattle, to fill a gap, as few like to confess ignorance, and, if people are asked about such or such a man, they must have something to say, or they suffer in everybody's opinion, are set down as dull or out of the swim. In this way I met not long ago with someone who, after talking some little while, and not knowing me or who I was, told me that David Garnet was dead, and died of being bitten by a cat, after he had tormented it. He had long grown a nuisance to his friends, as an exorbitant sponge upon them, and the world was well rid of him. Hearing this story of myself diverted me at the time, but I fully believe it has served me in good stead since, for it set me on my guard, as perhaps nothing else would have done, against accepting for true all floating rumour and village gossip, so that now I am by second nature a true sceptic, and scarcely believe anything unless the evidence for it is conclusive. Indeed, I could never have got to the bottom of this history, if I had believed one-tenth part of what I was told. There was so much of it that was either manifestly false and absurd, or else contradictory to the ascertained facts. It is therefore only the bare bones of the story which you will find written here, for I have rejected all the flowery embroideries, which would be entertaining reading enough, I dare say, for some. But if there be any doubt of the truth of a thing, it is poor sort of entertainment to read about, in my opinion. End of part four.